Pod here. Today, I'm joined by Lance Little. Lance is the Managing Director for Asia Pacific for Rush Diagnostics. Now, anybody who has been alive in the last 18 months will be aware of the idea of nasal or nasopharyngeal testing for COVID and the importance of that. And Rush Diagnostics are in the center place of the providing of all of the equipment that goes to testing for a whole range of healthcare diseases, not just for a virus like COVID-19. And in this interview, we, as always, discuss a wide range of things, including COVID. And given the position that Lance holds as the Managing Director for Asia Pacific, his view on how different countries have managed their response to the pandemic and how the notion of complying populations, which doesn't mean compliance from a lemmings perspective, but complying from we are all in this together and we are taking an educated and informed view from a health and economic perspective, how that can help a country respond to a pandemic such as COVID-19. We talk about the idea of collaborating with competitors and countries who have leaned across borders to try and solve a bigger problem than any one country can. We talk about New Zealand, where he is from, and the whole heritage of New Zealand, how it shapes his thinking, his way of being, it shapes the character of the country, and how the idea of being a problem solver with a degree of respect for your history can become potentially a style of leadership called the Kiwi leadership style. We discuss an idea called the Marlboro Man. Listen for that. We talk about expat leadership in Thailand in India, in Korea, and now in Singapore. And finally, we talk about health and how four hours a week is enough to keep this man on track. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay, now, from the beginning. We shall never surrender. I love seeing people do well. You know, I've had people now that I've worked with for 20 plus years and their kids have grown up and they're in university and they're doing great things. Now, that wouldn't have happened had we not provided a great platform as an organization and a company for them to thrive. Not only patients out there that we do good for, but also our own people. I just get a tremendous buzz out of that. Welcome to The Leadership Diet. I interview leaders and experts about ways to optimize leadership. What are useful habits and thinking patterns? What are the secrets to high-performing teams? And how do they continue to nurture their effectiveness day after day? In other words, what is their leadership diet? Welcome, Lance. Great to see you. Thanks, Bob. It's, uh, it's great to have the opportunity. Good to see you again. It's been a while. I've been looking forward to having you on the, my podcast. We're going to cover many things today. I suspect quite a bit around the All Blacks and the domination of world <laughs> rugby. But uh, before we get to those important topics, it'd be uh, remiss of me not to take the opportunity to talk to someone about probably the most important topic in the world today, that's been the COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. And given your role where you're sitting in a perfectly placed ringside seat from a health diagnostics perspective, I read something you wrote recently where you said diagnostic and healthcare testing forms a foundation that helps governments make decisions when treating healthcare and, of course, in the moment, pandemics. Mm. What has been your observation of governments and countries over the last 12 months as we've all tried to grapple with this major unforeseen or at least unforeseen to level we've, we've had it experience? Yeah, thanks, Pod. It's, you know, COVID has, has reshaped the world in, in all sorts of ways. And, and I don't think any industry or individual has, has escaped it. But I think from a diagnostics perspective, you know, we've always been aware and of the view that, uh, you know, clinical decisions 
for any disease are made on the basis of some form of diagnostic testing, right? Whether that's an x-ray, whether that's a blood test, whatever it is. And to the extent where there's some data that's been around a long time that says basically 2% of healthcare spend is spent on diagnostics, yet 70% of decisions are informed by diagnostic information. So, I mean, that's a fantastic return on investment if you want to think of it that way. (laughs) But of course, what it does do is it, it shows the fundamental value of diagnostics in the health care setting. Now, what COVID has done is it has highlighted the need for high quality testing in a particular unfortunate scenario that, that this pandemic brings. But what that has done is it's pulled the labs and the industry that, that I've been in for, for 35 years out of the basement into the policymakers, you know, office. And, and I think this is something, you know, in the past, you go to a barbecue and people ask what you do and it's very difficult to explain. We provide analyzers and tests to laboratories and all of this sort of thing. And people kind of look at you blankly and glaze over and walk away and talk to somebody else. Now, of course, you know, everybody understands what a test is. They think it's a nasal swab or a nasopharyngeal swab, but hey, that'll do, right? right. Now everybody understands the importance of testing. And I think this is critical and that's actually one of the dynamics that we've seen happen and a tremendous awareness now being made of the value of diagnostics. And so, you know, this is something that we want to make sure that people continue to be aware of for other diseases, cancers, heart disease, et cetera, et cetera. So when you look around, let's just say the Asia-Pacific region, because that's the region you know really well. On a, on a global scale, it's you would argue that a lot of countries in Asia-Pacific have handled COVID quite well in the sense mm-hmm. of minimizing infection and mitigating against economic impact. Mm-hmm. What's been your observation of countries who have done well relative to countries who have not done as well? Mm. Look, there's a lot of moving parts to, to answer that question, Pod, and I don't claim to have the, the recipe of how to manage this. But I think observing what, what some countries have done, I think, first of all, understand, well, looking at how strong your base healthcare system is, are you able to get healthcare to all of the population for a start, right? So is there a foundational strength to healthcare systems? Many there are, some there are not, and COVID has highlighted that weakness. So I I think that's one key element. Decision-making by the people in control, whether that's at a government level, a central government level or a federal government level is critical. And I think the countries that seem to have done better are those that have had a coordinated approach where the decision-making were being taken for the entire country. And then there's a level of consistency around that. And I think the other thing that we see in Asia particularly is experience. So many of the Asian countries went through SARS and MERS. And so they were geared up. They knew that another one is going to come. I don't think anybody imagined it would be of the scale that COVID has been, but they knew it was coming. And so there was an awareness and an understanding of what has to happen. And that awareness and understanding was not just at the policymakers level or the healthcare institutions, but to a certain extent, society. And so what you end up with is a compliant group of people. And the government says, we need to track and trace whenever you go in, into a building or leave a building. We need you to wear masks when you go outside. We need hand sanitizers everywhere. And this will be managed. Then when you have a compliant population, everybody goes, yep, righto, got it. 
And these countries have seems to have done very well in managing this. So, you know, if I look at Singapore, where I am, you know, you've got five plus million people. And if I compare it to New Zealand at home, okay, slightly less, but roughly the same population. The difference is, for those of anybody that knows New Zealand geography, Singapore is about the same size landmass as Lake Taupo yeah. in New Zealand. New Zealand's very big. So, you know, right. exactly. But yeah. the population density here in Singapore is phenomenal compared to New Zealand with similar size populations. Both countries have managed it very, very well. But you can imagine the coordination needed here in Singapore that the government has managed our way through has been absolutely tremendous. So there's a lot of moving parts, but fundamental health in the healthcare system itself before you start is has been key. And then I think coordinated decision-making and awareness in the public arena of how important these things are. You said something really interesting, and I know this is a thorny subject that may, might go on beyond our remit for today. But you talk about compliance and populations being compliant. And I don't think mm. you meant like lemmings doing whatever they're told to do. But, but, but just talk to what you meant by that. Well, you know, so what, what we typically observe in health is, is a very strong conversation and, and guiding principles around the science and biology of a disease or in this case a virus, et cetera. Now, what we see with COVID is, is equally important in terms of outcomes have been the behavior of people, the social element and the behavior of people. And yes, I, I, I don't think it's a case of following like lemmings because there's been a lot of misinformation around this. And I don't know, there'd be more qualified people to, to validate this statement. But in my sense is that this is probably the first time where we've had a global healthcare issue debated on social media. And, you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion, but there are facts. And so, you know, um, I think this is one of the dynamics that we've seen is people choosing to have maybe what they believe is an informed conversation, but where are you getting your information from? And I think this is an important element and encouraging societies to have an informed discussion helps them, an individual understand, well, you know what, it does make a bit of sense if the government says I've got to wear a mask when I go outside. Okay, I'll do that. Mm -hmm. So I, that's really what, what I mean. You know, it, it's shown up all sorts of elements, you know, the effect of social media, how it can be helpful, how it can be not helpful, yeah. and in the behavior of the population, how that can actually drive the behavior of a disease. Yeah, great. Another thing I, I heard you talking about elsewhere when, when you're discussing the last 12 months, you, you're observing that you noticed countries collaborating with each other in ways they hadn't done before, or indeed companies collaborating with each other, mm. with their competitors in order to solve this issue. That's not unique, I suppose, but it's happening on a worldwide scale to a level we probably haven't seen before. I suppose the question is, what's led to the leaders of either the countries or companies to realizing we can do better if we compete, if we collaborate with our competitors mm. as opposed to mm. try and go alone. Mm. I think like many things that COVID has done is it's forced an issue. You know, the uptake of digital tools is another one. I mean, we're doing this digitally and we could have done this in the past digitally, but we didn't for whatever reason. The technology was there. And, and so I think what COVID has done is, is the magnitude of the problem was so big that it became, it was very clear very quickly that no single entity can solve this thing on their own. So you have to work together. And I think that's just because the scale of the problem was so much more severe 
and some places still is, I have to be careful. I mean, it's not under control yet. It's so much more severe than many of the problems that we live with day in, day out. Now, you can argue that you can take state, uh, statistics and data, and maybe we should have this approach for many other challenges that we face in health and, and in other areas. I mean, you know, you, you could argue the, you know, the climate challenge that we're facing at the moment and the direction we're going there is even more important. And so we should adopt a similar collaborative approach to dealing with that. Yeah. Yeah, because no one's solving it right now by themselves, are no, they? So it no. needs something else. And, yeah. a, and as somebody once said to me, the planet will survive. That's the wrong That's the wrong state. We need to save the planet. Actually, the planet will survive. Uh, those of us living on it may be in a different boat. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Dr. Mark. Let's go back to where it all started. I, I know you to be a very proud Kiwi and New Zealander. <laughs> I have been present, indeed, I had the real privilege of being present at a, a meeting you held in Auckland about 18 months ago when you had the most extraordinary Maori welcome for your Asia-Pac colleagues who had never experienced that before. So let's start there. Let's start with that welcome, because uh, I, I remember at the time being there thinking, oh, I wish I could record this, but doing so would be so disrespectful of the moment. Yes. And yeah. I've often thought back to what an extraordinary moment it was. Mm. Tell us about that and the significance of, of that meeting in terms of the welcoming you, that you had organized. Yes, it was a bit of a special time, actually. As a regional leadership team, I have my GMs from all around, all of the 16 countries where we have legal entities across Asia Pacific, as well as, as my functional leads. And that's sort of my leadership team. And we, pre-COVID, we used to try and meet in different countries. But of course, you know, New Zealand's still a long way even from Asia, right? So rarely did we get to New Zealand. And, and there was a lot of pressure on me to go back by my team, actually, to go back and, and run a meeting there. And that gave us the opportunity really to, I think, put the crown on some work that we'd done some years before, which was around creating a culture that could connect all of these countries together, which was became known as APAC Spirit, which is something that I'm, I'm extremely proud of what we created as an organization. Maybe we can touch on that a little bit later on. But then taking the team back to New Zealand was, if you like, a little bit of a crowning moment to bring them back to some of the elements that framed and shaped the APAC spirit culture. And of course, you know, in doing that, we were very privileged to work with one of the local schools who one of my team in New Zealand was connected to. And they came in and, and did a, a tremendous pofuri and gave the non-Kiwis in my group, and most of my leaders are Asian leaders, you know, this sense of importance of respect, culture, history, anybody's actually, we were demonstrating it in the New Zealand context for obvious reasons, but you know, the importance of, of acknowledging what's gone before and how that shapes us as, as people and individuals and what we're trying to create and do today. So yeah, it was a little bit of something I'd always wanted to do in, in my leadership career to get people to experience that in a solemn respectful, appropriate way, which is what, what you described. Oh, this was not about getting your cameras out. This is not a tourist exercise. This is this was a learning experience for people and something I was very proud of to be part of. It was a, it was a deeply connecting and heartfelt experience mm. for a group of people standing there w with the Maori elders sharing their, their, their welcome. But it was also, as you said, built on history. And, you know, we're, we're, we're all coming from on the shoulders of somebody else, uh, which Yes. Therefore, how insignificant are we really in the whole history of, of time? Mm. Which leads me to New Zealand. It's one of my favorite countries in the world, a place I've been to many, many times. And I've gallantly 
cheered on Ireland and Australia losing in Eden Park <laughs> more than once. <laughs> so therefore, my respect for New Zealand is even more heightened. But I am actually really interested in New Zealand in terms of how it shapes leadership, because m- m- my view is having met many New Zealander leaders around Asia, there is something special, something different, something grounded about a leader who comes out of New Zealand. And I don't know what that actually is, but I, I, I just notice it. When you think of world leaders today, Jacinda Ardern is clearly um, one of the top two famous leaders in the world, yet have been a former president. Jacinda is probably the second most famous. And she's not the first really experienced female prime minister in New Zealand. So what is it about New Zealand, Lance, in your experience that shapes people and then shapes leadership when they leave New Zealand and go elsewhere? It, it's an interesting question, Pod, and something I've thought a lot about. Again, as having a passion for New Zealand, I'd love to be able to give back in some way. And and even when I go back and I and I sit down with my with my children, and for example, sit with my son and and his crew, you know what I notice, and he's a builder, and you, you know you sit and you have a chat to these guys, and my daughter as well, and there is a fundamental ease of moving into solving problems. That's one thing that I've observed over time that somehow exists in the Kiwi mentality. I don't think it's exclusive to New Zealand, as passionate as I am about the country. I think there's, you know, I don't think that's something that is exclusive to New Zealand. But I think it is something that comes a little bit in our DNA, as we might say. I mean, there's there's a saying that that, that people may have heard, you know, the, this New Zealand number eight fencing wire mentality. And for those that don't know it, right, number eight fencing wire is the gauge of wire that is used in farm fences and has been for years. And there's the old adage that goes, you know, you give a Kiwi a piece of number eight fencing wire and he'll fix anything. And obviously that's a bit, bit of an exaggeration, but there is this mentality that goes, well, for some reason, there's not a constraint to being able to do something. People don't go, oh, I can't fix that because I don't have that degree. Hmm. No, there's a problem to be solved, get on and solve it. So what you find is you have a lot of people in New Zealand who are very pragmatic, very practical. And I think that's something that is inherent in the New Zealand environment. Now, then maybe when you export that in terms of leadership, and and I can only speak for my own journey, but I think that serves you very well. And you don't even necessarily know you have this, to be honest. So I I think that serves you very well. However, there are some downsides as well. And I, again, I can only speak for my own journey, but I think one of the things that becomes very apparent when you leave New Zealand is the reason why you, you are comfortable solving problems and moving into that space very freely is because you're used to having to do things on your own. The, you know, the nearest country's two and a half hours flight away in Australia. And beyond that, hey, the world might as well be on Mars, right? So you're used to being independent. But then when you move out into the wider world, one of the things that I struggled with was actually that bigger picture, having that situational awareness that there there is much more going on than just the problem I'm trying to solve here. So I think that there's something in this about this problem-solving thing, and it is extremely valuable. But it's not everything the recipe needs. And that's something that I've learned along the way. completely agree with you. And, and I would say to you, if we, we spoke about the, the respect for history and eldership a few minutes ago, I think the combination of the respect for others, particularly history and the practical solving, gives that combination of groundedness that I suspect is what emerges in, in, in that leadership piece. Mm-hmm. And one, one without the other is probably less effective, but both together becomes quite an interesting, important combination. Mm-hmm. 
And there is, you know, I don't, I don't like stereotypes, but often there's some some element of truth in them as well. I mean, there's the old stereotype, you know, the Kiwi will sit there and not say much and just go and get it done. And again, not exclusive to New Zealand, but I think that is somehow in there. It's about getting done what needs to be done. We're not great at standing up there and doing three-hour speeches and PowerPoints and all of that. So you've got to learn that as a Kiwi, actually. And it's something that in an international career, you've got to learn and you've got to embrace it as well. Otherwise, that skill that got you started will not take you forward. I'm going to jump to your international career in a minute because you came out of New Zealand and you've been in India, Thailand, Singapore, as well as having led Korea and and Australia at different times. Mm -hmm. But in terms of shaping you, you've told me a story about a mutual friend of ours, Paul Burns, who was a previous guest on this (laughs) podcast (laughs) last year, where he refers to you as the Marlborough Man. And and it's it's kind of a a phrase that captures the essence of you and your leadership. (laughs) Just tell us about that first before we go into your leadership. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, okay. Yeah, so I credit Paul with this. And and I must admit, uh, Paul, it's a little bit intimidating in a sense, actually coming on this podcast, knowing that I I had to listen to Paul's (laughs) talk with you as well. And I thought, man, okay. No, I've got a huge amount of respect for Paul. And I first met met Paul, uh, like yourself, through the Leadership Circle Group. And I was fortunate enough to have Paul sort of unpack my leadership circle profile. And obviously there was a huge amount of learning in that and learning that I still use today. And I've, I've actually done that since and updated it. And I still go back to both versions to, to remind myself of some of the creative and reactive behaviors. But what Paul described when we were talking, given my profile, and he, we'd never met each other, and this was being done on the phone. I think he was in Europe at the time, and and I was in Singapore. And he described me, and he sort of summed me up. He said, Lance, he said, I don't know whether you're a smoker or not, but do you remember Marlboro cigarettes? And I went, I do, actually. And he said, do you remember the Marlboro man on the cigarette packet? And I said, yeah, wasn't he a kind of a cowboy riding his horse off into the distance or something like that? That was what I remembered. And he goes, that's exactly right. He said, I refer to you as the Marlborough man. I went, wow, okay. And in that simple analogy, I think he nailed me completely as a as an individual. And and you know what that's about is that I wouldn't claim through anything other than just looking at what's in front of me at any particular point in time. And it's not a planned behavior, but being comfortable all the way through my career to take the untrodden path, actually all the way through my life, actually, to take the untrodden path if that's the right decision for me at the the time. I mean, you know, at a personal level, I I think, Pod, you and I have shared, I mean, you know, when I was was young and and about to be married and, and young family on the way, we couldn't afford a house, but we could afford a section. And okay, so we bought a section and I was working in the lab. I was still training, actually, and and my wife was a nurse. And, well, we couldn't afford a house, so how do you get to a house where you buy a section and you build a house? And I had mates that I went to school with that were builders, and that didn't seem like rocket scientists, like rocket science, so why not? Again, I come back to that same mentality, right? Now, you could argue that's driven by ignorance. It was a lot more complicated than I thought, but... You figured it out. Ten years later, a two-story house, five-bedroom family home is, and it's still standing. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to say. So, it's sort of that mentality of, and within my professional career as well, not necessarily following like lemmings, but doing within the direction of the organization, but doing things right for the group of people that I'm with or responsible for or serving. And I think. That's something that has stayed with me all the way through. Clearly served you on many, many levels because you, you, you mm. left New Zealand. You went to, was it Thailand or to India you went first? No, Thailand and then back to New Zealand. Yeah. 
So, yeah. you, so New Zealand, Thailand, New Zealand, India, then Singapore, and in between Singapore. Korea and mm-hmm. Australia and other places. Now, they are dramatically yes. different countries in the sense of <laughs> history and cultures and, and way of being, even though they're all within the same geography in terms of Asia Pac. When you think about your first move into, into either Thailand or India and mm-hmm. think about you as a leader then, what do you remember now in terms of the way you took on those roles, the way you stood into those leadership roles, the mistakes you might have made in the early days mm-hmm. of taking on the country leadership role in, in a very different market? Mm-hmm. Do you know, it's interesting. I reflect back a lot on that journey and I, I think it, it starts a bit before Thailand. I've been very fortunate in my career to have a small number of very good leaders. Graham Watt, who's who's now retired, we go boating together, we're very good mates, but he, you know, he, he was my general manager for, for 17 years. And what he did, again, very quietly, just gave me more experiences in my various roles in the New Zealand, his New Zealand organization. And so what that meant was that I was being grown whether I knew it or liked it or not, to the point where he he came to me and and the regional head was in New Zealand at the time. He came to me one day and I was due to give a a business review. And Graham came to me and he said, I want to talk to you for a minute. I said, oh, we're ready to go. I mean, we're running out of time. I need to get this review done to the regional head. And Graham said, yeah, just come. We want to talk to you for a minute. And then he sort of invited me into his office and we sat down, the three of us, and and typical Graham style, he said, how do you feel about rice and chili? (laughs) I went... Uh, you know, you've got, you've got to understand, I'm a business area head at the time. I'm about yeah. to give the business review to my GM and his regional head, yeah. right? And it's yeah. like, am I, I, what are you talking about, Graham? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's when they said they'd, they'd like me to go to Thailand as GM. And this was a first GM role. And my response to Graham was, Graham, I don't know how to be a GM. And his response to me was, you've already been doing it. So what he had been doing was giving me more and more responsibility in a New Zealand context, which positioned me such that the GM step was a step, but it wasn't a huge step. And that gave me a tremendous amount of confidence when I then did go to Thailand. I'm in Bangkok and there's millions of people. I don't speak the language. I'm the minority. I'm the foreigner. It's a good team with a lot of experience. And here's this guy rocked in from New Zealand of all places. And he's the new boss. I, I was very fortunate in that I had a very good sales manager who then went on to become the GM and still is the GM in Thailand today, Pichit Pong. And he, he really supported me well, although by his own admission was a little bit cautious when I first arrived, you know, non-Thai, but actually by accident, I had no choice but to do the following. And the following is my advice for anybody going into a new culture and environment, regardless of how much business experience they have for their first 90 days or whatever it is. I give the same advice and I learned it by accident. Shut up, listen and learn. In that order. Yeah, because I knew the business. I've been in the business for 17 years. I knew how to to provide our solutions into the labs. I, I knew all the mechanics, the same products. They're used in the same way. What I didn't understand was the context by which things happened. And I learned that really by necessity and it stuck with me all the way through my career. And I look at it now and I've been extremely grateful to be able to work in these different cultures and try and unpack why people make the decisions they make. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we make the decisions we make 
based on the inputs that we've had up until this point in time, right, which shapes our views, which shapes our, our value systems, the cultures we grew up in. I was a Kiwi trying to do business in Thailand. I had to learn at a basic level how Buddhism works and what are the important elements because 98% of the people I'm talking to hold that in the highest esteem. Yeah. And it impacts the way they do business because of that. It it wasn't about the mechanics of the sales process. It wasn't about the features and benefits of the product. That all comes later. Mm -hmm. Uh, That that, that all just came. And so that stuck with me. And then then again, when I went on to India, it was firmly in my mind, yeah, shut up, listen, and learn. This place works completely differently. And I don't think without that experience of Thailand, I would have been able to do India. And now I, I respect all of the different cultures and they are completely different. And people make decisions differently in those countries because of the way those cultures drive behaviors and beliefs. We hope you're enjoying this episode of The Leadership Diet. Feel free to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast player you are listening to this on. Reviews on iTunes and Spotify are greatly appreciated. So I remember uh, interviewing a lady called Becky Morrison last year for this podcast, who's now in a, in a global role in Denmark. But she was talking about the advice she gives to any new expat leader. And it's very similar to you. She goes, particularly when you go to countries like Australia and New Zealand, which has a lot of expats coming through, so, you know, the locals there, they can hold their breath longer than your rotation will last, i.e. they're happy yes. to see you come and go. So her, her mm-hmm. advice was almost identical to yours is shut up and, and really learn the culture of the country yeah. first before you even think about the business. Because yes. if you don't, then you, you, you just want to, you want last. Yeah. And I think the other thing that that experience gives you, it makes it, it gives you that realization that you will fail unless you can engage the organization. It's, it's an extreme experience of that, right? I mean, in your own culture or a culture that you connect with very easily, that's less obvious. You might intellectually know it, but where I'm sitting there as a GM and I can't even speak the language and I can barely communicate with all but the more senior leaders in hospitals and labs, then I am absolutely going to fail in that role if my, if my Thai team is not engaged. So it very quickly makes you realize that I need to work for my team so that we can all be successful. It's not me, me, me. You know, I think you learn that pretty quickly when you're operating in a cultural environment that is completely different to your own. So given what you said earlier on, Lance, about, you know, one of the strengths of being from New Zealand is the very pragmatic, I'll, I'll go and sort this, I can fix it out. Mm-hmm. And now you're finding yourself in different cultures where actually if you don't engage everybody with you, no matter how good you are, it won't happen. Mm-hmm. Yes. How did that learning happen for you? It's still a work in progress, Pod. I want to put that as... <laughs> okay. We're all still a work in progress. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, and again, I'm going, to, I'm going to quote our friend Paul Byrne here. He, he's also sort of, you know, encouraged me to, to make the move from being the battlefield general to the diplomat to avoid the war in the first place, right? And this is, this is a, a learning journey that I'm still working through. I, I haven't mastered that at all. But yes, you're right. It's very difficult. And I, I, frankly, it challenges your value set. It challenges fundamentally why you are where you are. Because very often we move up in an organization because of what we know. We know stuff that serves a good purpose for the, for the company, but then when you have to enable others, we, we're really trained for that. We don't know what that means. And in some cases, it can be counterintuitive. I think some leaders fail because they don't get there. Mm-hmm. In truth, you, you're going to get to a point where your ability to deliver is, only, is, is limited to your own self. Therefore, you can't scale, you can't you know, multiply the effort 
and therefore you're going to you're going to be limited, and that's where you'll stop. And I, I think for me, that's the transition. I started I started working for for Roche back in 1995, and prior to that, I'd spent ten years in lab, so I was a customer. And very technical. I was running the analyzers. The the analyzers of the doing the blood tests were where my passion was. I moved into Roche in a technical support role, supporting our customers, making sure the analyzers continued to work. So, you know, my degree is in biochemistry, not in business. And so that that was a bit of an unusual journey in a sense. But I had to make this transition from loving the logic of an instrument to the fuzzy logic of human beings. Let me put it that way. <laughs> Very fuzzy. Right? Uh, <laughs> and I remember being quite frustrated in that transition and I didn't really know how to handle it. Um, but now if you asked me where my passion lies and, and I very genuinely mean this, I, it's just, I love seeing people do well. You know, I've had people now that I've worked with for 20 plus years and their kids are, have grown up and they're in university and they're doing great things. Now, that wouldn't have happened had we not provided a great platform as an organization and a company for them to thrive. Not only patients out there that we do good for, but also our own people. And and I, I just get a tremendous buzz out of that. But as far as the, yeah, it was one of those examples where what had served me well and is still part of my DNA I've had to learn to dial back mm-hmm. and grow into other areas that enable me to to enable others. You mentioned scaling a couple of times and you lead um, one of the biggest and certainly fastest growing areas in the world for, for healthcare. How do you manage to scale leadership given how different the countries and cultures are and given what you've just said that you have to be able to bring people with you and each of the countries you've been in have different cultures and, and, and at a society level. So how do you scale leadership in such an area like that? First of all, I'm a big believer, given what I just described, I mean, my learning was people will take decisions in different cultural environments, different countries differently. So if you acknowledge that as a fact, then naturally you go towards, I'm a big believer in a decentralized model for a multinational organization like ours. It's the same product. No question. It's value proposition is the same, but how you get from point A to point B in two different countries is very different. Mm -hmm. And it has to be. And I'm a big believer in respecting the local cultures and the way decisions are made. So decentralized model is one, but then how do you keep alignment? How do you stop this thing going in all different directions? And that comes back to what I touched on early, earlier on pod, which was this I was, and I'm going to bring out the All Blacks if you don't mind. On the, I, if, I, if, if I elaborate on the story. <laughs> <So> <laughs> <laughs> um, but but what happened was sort of after I'd been in the regional role with the 16 countries for a number, a couple of years, there was uh, there was a piece missing, and what it was was that I I wanted to find a way to leverage our voice as Asia Pacific, but given the diversity, how do you actually do that? How do you get people at a level where they can connect? because everybody is so different. And that was one question that I had in my mind. There was a second question that was looking at long-term success. So how do you create an organization that is successful for the long term? And I'm not talking about a five-year business cycle. I'm talking about decades into generations. How do we, what, what are the elements of that? And so I had both of these questions rumbling around in my head. And it was the second one that led me to, uh, it was an article I forget the journalist's name, but it was a statement made, and I didn't even know this, but it was a statement made by a journalist 
that was uh, James Kerr, actually. Her James Kerr. Book, and he's since trying to write a book yeah. called Le- yeah, yeah, Legacy. So, but there was a, I'd, I'd read an article that he had written in, I think, a UK newspaper or something. And, and it made the statement that the New Zealand All Blacks are the most successful sporting team in the history of sport. And I went, come on. I mean, yeah, I'm, I've got black blood running through my veins, but seriously, that's a big call. Now, and it's actually true. Subsequently found out. And that started to peak this question around what they've done is they've created an organization that's had multiple superstars over a hundred plus years. They're not always number one, but they're rarely below number two or three mm-hmm. for a hundred plus years, multiple coaches, multiple leadership, different players have all cycled through, but there is a consistency here. And what interested me even more was during the, and I I subsequently read his book and he talks about how with a 70% success rate for all of that history, they sat down and said they got a problem and it was a cultural problem, right? So they tidied up and enriched the culture. And I don't know what the all black success rate is now, but it's higher than 70%. I'd be happy with seven out of 10, frankly, but you know, this, and, and, and what that triggered in me was this, process around how do I build a culture across 16 countries? And so what we did with the help of very kindly Gilbert Inoka, who was the mental skills coach with the All Blacks, I reached out to him. We didn't know each other. And he very kindly came and did some work for us, facilitated a workshop where we brought all of my Asian leaders together, actually in Perth. And we started off with only two questions. So first of all, what we did was we asked our people in all of the countries, describe the company you would love to be part of. Wasn't a, wasn't a questionnaire or a Google form, but if you just describe it, talk to me. Describe the company you'd love to be part of. We brought that in. And then with the leadership group, we asked some fundamental questions. What are your non-negotiable values, Lance, as a person on this planet, not as head of Asia Pacific? And likewise to all of the GMs and, and my leadership team, we asked the same question. And then we overlaid those two pieces and we came up with a set of principles that are still with us today. And it became known as APAC spirit. And as somebody said, you know, we've done, we've captured the spirit of Asia, Asia Pacific. And it included elements that the New Zealanders and the Australians connect with, the Thais, my team in Myanmar, it doesn't matter, India, Pakistan, everybody. And this is at a principle level. It's not at a rule level. Right. Now, it's things that you might think, you know, people first. Okay, fine. But then as a sub-point to that, we go relationships built on trust and respect. That's an expectation on me as the head of the region in the same way it's an expectation as the person who joins our company this afternoon. Mm -hmm. There is no hierarchy of accountability. It is the same expectation all the way through. And that created this dynamic where I could have the nuances of a decentralized leadership and have the countries flexing as they needed to for that country, but with a principle set that lay above that, that we all abided to. And so I, that, this has been a really key anchoring element and what people have described it in, in, the, in the journey so far, you know, it started off as a PowerPoint presentation, ended up as a poster on the wall, but the way in which we actually I don't like the word embedded because it sounds forced, but I don't know a different word. The way in which this this was the organization immersed itself in, in this APAC spirit principle was part of why people now describe it as part of our DNA. Hmm. And I've had experiences where people will come for, with a business model to me to exit a product line. And their starting point is one of our principles that says, do the right things and do things right. Yeah. That's the starting point. So they're holding me accountable to the principles to make a commercial business decision. And then I knew it had really become embedded in our culture um, across these countries. 
the the book Legacy that you, you refer to is a is a great example of a book that talks about principles as opposed to tactics, etc. And, yes. and I remember when I first read it, I, I remember thinking at the time, uh, to what degree have the All Blacks shaped New Zealand versus to what degree have, does New Zealand shape the All Blacks? And at the end of the day, it doesn't make a difference because you know the principles emerge. Mm. But have, having mm. seen your team in action, I have witnessed quite a few of your colleagues raise phrases like "doing the right thing is why I want to raise this point." And so yes. it becomes a, a really lived principle uh, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. over time it's embedded. That leads me to an interesting piece. Uh, if I look at, uh, and it's a stereotypical statement that I'm going to about to make and appreciate, there's many, many examples that are proven wrong to what I'm about to say. But, but Asia culture has a respectful deference for leader and hierarchy. And therefore, mm-hmm. often leaders who are the most senior often don't get feedback because of their seniority. How do you, in your role, given your views of leadership, how do you ensure that you are getting the feedback that you need or that you, you, know, you, you should be hearing from the various countries that you're leading? Yeah. I don't think you ever do, if I'm honest. I don't think you can ever achieve that. And therefore, you've got to kind of paint the picture about your leadership and yourself through looking, uh, getting feedback from different lenses. You know, I've already said, I, I, for me, the leadership circle profile was the most fundamentally changing experience that I have gone through in, in my career. Uh, there's, we all do all sorts of leadership programs. That one for me had really, really became important. And that, I guess, was feedback from my peers and my team because of the, the mechanism. But the way it's constructed, it's almost external. It, it's a bit of an external view. And then creating trust internally. So, you know, I have had people come up to me following, you know, my conversations in a meeting where I might have get, got frustrated or something like that. And, and my, some of my senior leaders would come up to me after and say, hey, Lance, you were out of line. And it hurts and it's uncomfortable at the time, but it was true. And I think that only comes with trust. And building trust is, in my view, is all about just being genuine I've never been a believer, and I feel quite strongly in today's working environment now of this, never believed in this concept of, oh, this is me at home and this is me at work, right? What a rubbish. You're you're a singular person, right? And no matter how you think you can separate those two things out for whatever reason that you might want to, and I don't think it's helpful personally, because as a leader, well, if I'm going to follow somebody, I want to understand a couple of things. I want to understand, are they going in a direction that I think makes sense and fits with me? And do they have a character that I can connect with? Now, the only way I can determine an honest character of an individual is to see that individual in an honest state, Mm -hmm. right? And so like it or not, we're all imperfect beings. There is no perfect whatever, and there's certainly no perfect leader in my view, but um, we're all imperfect beings. And being honest about where where you do have value to add and being honest about where you still have areas to work on brings a connectivity and helps build that trust amongst the team. And I'm very fortunate. I've been in this role long enough that people can't hold their breath. Um, so <laughs> since 2012, so it's a long journey for a regional head and a multinational, right? It's a long time and some would say maybe too long and maybe that's true. But, you know, I, I think I've been fortunate to have been able to have the time to build that trust across a broad part of the organization. Another piece that helps takes a bit of people getting used to and something that you also need to be aware of is this Kiwi thing as well. Remember in New Zealand, hierarchy doesn't hardly exist, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. Hey bro, come and sit down and have a beer. 
Right? I don't care if you profess or whatever or, or you clean up in the car park. If you're a good person. That's what counts. We'll enjoy each other's company. And uh, again, so I, I, I never went in to the hierarchical world of Asia, and it still is in a, in, in a, in a lot of areas, with, I mean, I was, I was ignorant in, in truth. And that allowed me to maneuver. Now, sometimes I trip over things and I go, oops, I didn't realize that. And so, you know, you have to learn along the way. But you're always learning. It's always a journey. And I think that's where the trust is built. People understand and respect the fact that you, you see that. One of the things you and I were talking about earlier before we pressed the record button today was the level of leader at a country level, the managing director at, a, at a, say, head of Brazil or head of the Philippines or head of Australia, et cetera, and the role that they play being fundamentally important to every organization because they, they, they run a market. What have you noticed over the last number of years in your, your role as head of Asia PAC in terms of the leaders who are succeeding in those roles versus the leaders who are not succeeding in those roles? What's the difference? Mm-hmm. Oh. Obviously, there is a capability piece, right, for, for a start. But, but, but I guess let, let's assume that, that somebody is in a general management role, they have the capability. Then with that aside, I really do believe it comes down to mindset and how willing you are to genuinely do the right thing for your people and for your customers, whoever that is, whatever, whatever that is defined as in, in your particular industry. And I mean genuinely because where I see immediate failure is the individual that rocks in and goes, I know all the answers, I know all the solutions, I'm here to teach you guys how to do this. And like you say, the local team will hold their breath and go, yeah, we're still going to be here when you're gone, so okay. And that's a dangerous cycle for companies to get into in, in my view. But then there is, the, I believe, the leader in the middle that – intellectualizes the need to work for others and empower others, but in such a way such that they get the benefit. Right. Right. So there's still that, that central ego at play that says, this is all for the good of me and I'll do it in such a way that looks like I'm helping others succeed. Now that lasts longer, but in truth doesn't end up being a strong organization. One of the things I look at when, when, when a GM moves out of a role is, and it's a bit like the all black Jersey analogy, right? As a, if you make the all blacks, you are the custodian of that Jersey and your job is to make it better than it was when you received it. Mm-hmm. You don't own it. It's not yours. You are going to pass it on to somebody else, hopefully in better shape, you know, the position, not the actual jersey, right, but but the position that you've got in for. And I look at general managements are the same or leaders in general is the same. Somebody might have financially done a great job for two years, left a trail of destruction, then moves on to the next step in their career. Now, I look at the trail of destruction and I go, well, hang on a minute. This organization has not strengthened since that person came in. And that's a bit of a measure that I use. I also am not a favor, given the nature of our business as well as in healthcare, and it's a tends to, it's a highly technological business, but it tends to be somewhat slow cycling. Then I'm a big fan of five years rather than three for a general manager role, because you get time to enjoy the fruits of your labor or sort out the mess if you hadn't 
hadn't got it right. I would suggest that's counterintuitive to many organizations who, who, who tend to rotate GMs through every two to three years. In fact, mm-hmm. the contracts are three mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And my experience is the first year, hopefully they're learning. Second year that they're doing something, but by the third year that they're looking for the next role, they're exiting. So they, have, they haven't sustainably developed the organization at all. Yes, yes, yes. And, and certainly, and I think to be fair, faster cycling industries may have a different view on that. Certainly for healthcare, I, I would completely agree. Uh, but I guess coming back to your question, where do I see people succeeding? Those people that succeed are the ones that genuinely go and they know they've got the skills to be a general manager. Maybe they've been a general manager in another country before, so they know the mechanics of the business. But they go in and they genuinely, actively try and understand the environment they're working in, right? I mean, you may know how to play rugby, but if you find yourself on a soccer field, then you're not going to do well, right? Work out where you are and how it works and then bring your knowledge and your skills to the table and then look to scale. How many of the people am I interacting with? How many of the people in my team could replace me in my role? And how do I get them there? How do I fill the funnel? And uh, that's certainly a challenge in the APAC environment. Yeah, succession planning. I'm going to segue to a completely different conversation. I went on to a website, a guy called Will Foden, who I know you know. And there's some photographs on the website. And the first I thought, oh, look, there's, there's Richard McCall, the former all black captain doing a deadlift. And went, no, 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 he's, this guy's far too strong for that. Oh, it's, it's The Rock, it's Dwight. It's Lance Little doing 170K, which is like about 380 pound deadlift. Mm, <laughs> and, there's, yeah. and, and there's some photographs of uh, torn tendons that are a little bit graphic in nature. Yes. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's talk about health. Let's talk about health, yeah. <laughs> so for, first of all, before we jump into your own habits for your own health, that injury that, that is very graphic on that website, mm. what was that? And, and, and are you fully that? better? <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to then, Will tells me this, I should embellish the story a lot more. You know, I was trying to lift heavy in the gym and everything like that. No, not at all. I was actually snowboarding with friends of ours in, in Europe and I fell over and I caught my arm and it sort of hyperextended backwards. And in a little bit of an unusual tear, I tore the tendon that, that joins the bottom of your bicep to your forearm, I right. tore that completely off and resulted in surgery and pins through the bone and things like that. And so, yes, the, that story that Will developed was sort of meant to be a lot around the rehab journey and the value of having my surgeon, my trainer and my physio all connected and how it made that journey a lot easier. But yes, there's, there's some interesting, people give me a hard time about that. Uh, <laughs> well, I thought I was Dwayne the rock in, in yeah. that photograph. But, but it, yeah. it does bring me on to an important conversation. Pre-COVID, I remember you telling me once your travel schedule is something like 80%. Like every like yep. 40 weeks out of 50, you're, you're out of Singapore mm-hmm. traveling. And that's not unique for someone in an Asia-Pac role or indeed in, in a region role. But how does a leader who is traveling so much and then therefore by nature staying in hotels and doing dinners, et cetera, how do they stay healthy and how do mm. they put their health as a prime focus for themselves? And I know you're someone who does that. So can mm. you start, first of all, tell us why it's important to you? And then more importantly, how do you actually do it? What's, what, are, what are the mechanics of that for you? Mm. Yeah, it, it has become built into my my life model, if you like. And I, I mean, so as a kid, younger man, I played a lot of sport, some competitively in New Zealand, like many Kiwis do, like many people who live in the Southern Hemisphere do. And, you know, so sport's a big part of New Zealand. I'd always played a lot of sport, 
have a competitive nature to me. But then as you have families, build houses, uh, you know, careers and things like that, the boat in there as well, yeah, you know, these things often get put on the sidelines. Now I'm in health as well. So, yes, you're right. I mean, I I would typically pre-COVID do up to 40 international trips a year, and that's Asia or Europe or the US. So you spend a lot of time in airline lounges, and I was looking at people, generally men, who got to be, I would, I would assess at 10 or 15 years younger than me that are walking heart attacks. It's just a time bomb waiting to happen. And I thought to myself, you know, that's it's not good. You should be aware of that, Lance. So I sort of had this base thing of sport and exercise, although at, at a time for many years, I didn't do much. And then it was actually my wife that triggered it. She's addicted to her fitness. It's got to happen every day and, and things like that. And sort of part of that sort of became, you know, actually it's probably a good thing, Lance. And now it's become a regular part of my routine. I train four days a week. I commit four hours in a week. Is that all? That's all. But, you, but, you, you, but you often do more than four hours I'm taking. Oh, no. So four hours is it. Okay. Four hours is it. I have three hours with my trainer and then Patty and I on a Sunday on our balcony do do an hour of conditioning that I hate and she loves, but we do it anyway. But, but, but I guess the driver became stronger in me as I actually got into it. And if I think about men aging particularly, and then my, my dad's 92, you know, he's, and he wouldn't mind me saying, he, he's, he's frail. He was an electrician and he had lived a physical life. And as a result of that, I mean, he's got joint problems and things like that. But no matter what happens, particularly men, when they age, we get frail. We, we lose muscle mass. It's a point where, you know, we get weaker and frail and things like that. So I've never running hundreds of miles. I respect the people that do that. It's not for me. Strength and power is something that I am interested in. I enjoy doing it. And I figure it's going to keep me healthier, stronger, longer. Keep your posture right. Keep, you know, strengthen your muscles and things like that. So that's what Will does with me. We work through a program of strength and mobility mostly. Now, just by the nature of lifting weights, you're burning calories anyway. So, you know, you sort of get that that element. But longevity of life and the fact that it, an important piece here is it gives me four hours in a week where I'm not thinking about work. Right. Right. And that's the other thing. If, if I run or sit on a bike, my mind's still thinking about work. Whereas if I'm going to pick up heavy weights and anybody that lifts weights will know yes, right, you're, you're concentrating on your form, making sure that everything works right. So that's what the other thing that I like about that type of training. What does that mean for when you're traveling in terms of how, how do you replicate that? Yeah, it's not easy. My objective is to at least not go backwards. So what I would do when I'm traveling, obviously, usually I'm shattered by the end of the day. And by the time you do dinners and meetings and things like that, then you, I can't go to the gym at 10 o'clock at night. So for me, it's get up in the morning. Pre-COVID, I used to be permanently jet lagged anyway. So get up in the morning, go and do an hour in the gym, understanding I'm away for four or five days and I'll hopefully be back for my Friday session, for my Saturday session with Will, so I can get my good session in there. And then, and, and you make it work, but it's not ideal. And I think you've just got to keep it ticking over. I think the, the biggest issue on, on health and the body is spending, I mean, I spent basically eight years jet lagged. Yeah, you're just different time zones every week. Hormones are wrong. Your eating patterns are wrong. It's very hard to, and you, you just, like anything, you just got to do the best you can. Mm-hmm. But consistency is key. Consistency is absolutely key. Yeah. And I'm, I'm guessing I know the answer to this one, but it's worthwhile asking anyway, in terms of focusing for four hours a week on, on powerlifting, et cetera, 
What do you do from a diet and alcohol perspective to support that? I, I support that with food and alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't what I was expecting. <laughs> no, I know it wasn't. No, you've got you've got to enjoy life how you wish to enjoy it. I'm not. We're not big drinkers, but we enjoy a, we enjoy a glass of wine, and we tend actually just not to drink very much during the week. We'll go out for dinner on a, on the weekend, Friday or Saturday night. We'll have a bottle of wine between the two of us, and and that's fine. I'm not a big beer drinker, so yeah, I, I mean. You know, you want to enjoy life, right? I don't have the discipline to or the desire to be that controlled, you know, like like many people are. So for me, it's about this balance and fundamentally staying, you know, fit and strong. Now, there's an inner drive. There's a, and I come back to to Paul Burns' description of me when we first met. He said, "Have you played competitive sport?" And I said, "Yes." And he said he could see it in my in my reactive, um, I was off the charts on, on a couple of elements and, and, you know, and that is still there. I am competitive, but now I'm competitive with myself. Right. right. And so, you know, I say to Will often, I say, you know, I'm, I want to be the strongest 55 year old you got in the gym. And he goes, well, you got a bit of work to do. Right. You know? <laughs> 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 but we're always on a journey somewhere. Always on right? a journey somewhere. Thank you. Yeah. Will. <laughs> Hey, I want to bring this conversation to a close. It's been so much fun, Lance, and so insightful. Thank you for sharing all that you have. Uh, given you said you've listened to some previous podcasts, you, you'll, you'll be aware of my two questions that I'm going to bring to you next. One is, what is your favorite band or your favorite song? Mm. Yes, I did listen to your podcasts, and I realized this was a standard question, and, and it's a hard one. And what I realized in reflecting on the question is, and maybe it's part of the Marlboro Man thing, just still on the journey. So if you ask me right now today, I listen to a lot of DJs. Right? Now, I didn't grow up with DJs, but I listen to a lot of DJs. And Patty, my wife, she actually is an amateur DJ herself, so I don't have a choice in that sense. But right now I'm listening to Rez, a DJ out of Canada. She's fantastic. I absolutely love it. I've got her playing nonstop, R-E-Z-Z. But if I look back at different periods of my life, there are different elements. In a classic sense, U2, The Streets Have No Name, that, that's always there. ZZ Top was a big band for me. So, yeah, it, it really is a, is a mix. But, but more recently, right now, Rez, more recently, Muse and Linkin Park. Would be so sort of a bit of a, a, a bit complete. Spread. There's that's a right. mix, right? I mean, that's why I thought. I hope Todd doesn't ask me this question. Uh, well, no, no one's ever told me about Res before, so I'm going to link her and uh, Res's yeah. uh, stuff to to your show notes here for for, for that reference. And yeah. I'm going to look her up. I don't know much about her, so I look forward to that. Uh, you two with the streets of no name. I yes, I'm, I'm a huge fan. As that's you can imagine, right. we discussed yeah. that a long time ago. Uh, yeah. Last question, Lance. Given everything that you we've discussed, everything that you now know, what, what would you be telling the the thirty year old version of you? Yeah, um, I think it has to do with this very specific view of the world as a Kiwi. I'd be encouraging that younger version of myself to look and 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 be curious about the world much earlier. I fell into it because I had to, because the job required me to. But it's wonderful. And I think if you if you can have that, and it's one of the dangers I see for New Zealand actually is becoming too isolated. The the the, the value and the preciousness of that isolation and, and done too much. And we we can lose connection with the developments in the world and the things that are going on in the world. And so yeah, my advice to that younger Kiwi back in New Zealand would be pay more attention to what's going on 
in in the bigger world because it's actually not that big. And, you know, there's a risk of New Zealand getting left behind and uh, desperately don't want that to happen. Fantastic. As a citizen who's benefited from COVID testing and contact tracing, I really appreciate all the work you and your teams are doing because uh, certainly uh, the world is benefiting enormously. Lance, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Pod. Been an absolute pleasure. Take care. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Lance. I certainly did. And as always, I love immersing myself in a deep conversation with someone who is so experienced and more importantly, willing to share their ideas and their insights. A few things struck me about this conversation. The first one, we jumped into late in the conversation, but it struck me as being really interesting from a leadership perspective. The phrase that Lance talked about, he used a phrase about the idea of he is mindful at the moment of moving to become a diplomatic type leader who is averting the next crisis, as opposed to the general marshal who's currently leading the advance in the current crisis. And it's a simple metaphor, but it really goes towards narrative, the personal narratives that we hold and the personal narratives that guide and impact our leadership. And narratives, which you've probably heard me talk about before, very, very closely linked to our sense of values and our sense of value as a leader. And what I loved about what Lance was inferring is that he's in an active process of understanding he brings value in many ways as a leader. And it's very much closely linked to the values he holds as a Kiwi-born, Asia-developed or molded leader. But now as he leads the organization to its next level of growth, and indeed he may move to a different role, who knows, he's recognizing that the narrative of being the general is limiting himself and therefore potentially limiting the organization. Whereas the next level of leadership, that notion of being a diplomatic type leader where you are looking beyond the horizons and averting potential crises or potentially open doors for collaborating with competitors or others is his next level. And it strikes me it's a worthwhile question to ask ourselves. If we were to create a character right now that captures our current view of the value we bring as a leader, what would that character be? What would the essence of the character be? What would that character believe? What impact would that character have? The other side of that conversation is, what are the limits of that character? How is that character getting in my way? And what might be the next character to bring into this movie, into this show, into this play? The second piece, which of course you'd have to expect would happen when you talk to someone who's so proud of their heritage, and indeed their heritage is worth being proud of, we discussed the impact of the All Blacks culture on the country and indeed their success as a team, and how that influenced Lance to do some work that led to what he called the APAC spirit, which is not about New Zealand culture influencing APAC, but the approach that he took was getting the spirit of all the 16 countries within his region to come together to develop some principles. That's not a new idea, but what I loved about his experience and his approach was he's looking to do this for many decades. This is going to outlive him, the 16 GMs that are currently on that team, their leadership teams, it's going to outlive all of those, i.e. it's a legacy approach to culture. It's a long-term approach to culture. And two things struck me about that. For anyone who hasn't read the book Legacy by James Kerr, even if you're not a rugby fan or even if you're not a sports fan, it's a worthwhile read. 
because it goes into the notion of long-term principle and long-term standing on the shoulders of the people who come before us and standing on the shoulders with a degree of respect. So that's, that's a worthwhile pickup if you haven't read that book. But the second thing that struck me is as a leader, when we do think of the culture that we are creating around us, what's our time span? Are we thinking 18 months? Are we thinking three years? Are we thinking my current assignment and maybe a bit longer? Or are we thinking in decades? And how does our time span influence the level of depth of principle that we're putting into that level of thinking? The third thing that struck me, and this is again not unique to Lance, every very experienced expat leader I've ever met, as in when I say very experienced, they've done more than three countries and therefore the learning is truly grounded. The message is always the same. When you move into a new country and you can apply this to a new company as well as a new country for the first 90 days, shut up, listen and learn. People say that differently, but certainly shut up, listen, learn is a very grounded and a very focused approach, i.e. how do you take lots of time in your first 90 days to truly understand the society cultural aspect of what's going on, as opposed to the details of the actual job. The mechanics of selling radiology diagnostic equipment in Thailand is the exact same mechanics of the product sale in Texas or Nevada or Dublin or Melbourne. The products don't change, but the society cultural environment for the teams that are operating there changes dramatically. The way a team approaches sales that have a Hindu background is probably very, very different to those from a Buddhist background or indeed no religious background. So how does a leader take time to understand the environment they're in and really allow themselves to soak in it to understand it? And the last point that I think is really worthwhile listening to and reminding ourselves, particularly if we are sitting in a role of a country level GM, MD, whatever title you have in that role, or you're aspiring for that role, Lance's ideas of how these leaders who succeed versus the leaders who are not succeeding and his notion of really taking time to understand the business, taking time in the role, i.e. his view, five years, which is a very interesting proposition to consider but also taking time to scale leadership so that the organization is strengthened behind you. They are the leaders who are succeeding in the long term and they are not leaving a trail of destruction behind you. Certainly my experience, having supported many leadership teams who have been left in the wake of destruction from a leader who's been there for two years and then gone on somewhere else, is there's a lot more cost than just a financial cost. So how do we support the most senior of leaders to think about sustainability as well as the short-term success and do so in parallel, in my view, is paramount. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Leadership Diet. We hope you enjoyed it. Head over to www.theleadershipdiet.com where you can subscribe to the podcast, to our blogs, and retrieve the show notes from each episode. Every show note has links to whatever resources were mentioned by our guest, including their favorite song or band. And the best way you can support this podcast is by subscribing and sharing it with your colleagues and friends so they can hear the insights from our guests as well. Thank you.